and sadly, you know, yeah, we 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 all a lot of people when they when they have trouble, uh, you know, when they're using. I mean, I look back on my life and every breakup, every car crash, every phone loss, every hardship. I could look back and see that drugs and alcohol were involved in some way. So getting sober, of course, really changes, you know, your life's dynamic, you know, because all those problems that you cause because of using are going to be gone. You know, and if if that's what you if that's what you really want, then you have to do what it really takes. And that means it's going to take some work. That was Freddie Negrete. And this is the Share Podcast. It's time for the Share Recovery Podcast, where we bring you amazing life-changing success stories from addicts and alcoholics all over the world who share their inspiring journey in recovery. And now, here's your host, O. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Share Podcast. And today, it is an honor to have Freddie Negrete joining us on the show. This man gave me my very first tattoo 25 years ago. And when his publicist reached out for me and asked uh, if I would consider having Freddie on the show and started to explain to me who he was, <laughs> I immediately sent him an email. I'm like, dude, are you kidding me right now? Freddie just launched a brand new book. It's called Smile Now, Cry Later, Guns, Gangs, and Tattoos, My Life in Black and Gray. He is an unbelievably talented black and gray uh, tattoo artist. He spent many years in prison uh, cultivating his, his talent um, and has had a roller coaster ride, uh, to say the least. A life that many of us would categorize as a Hollywood movie with a spectacular happy ending. For me, this is one of those interviews where I could have just kept talking to Freddie for hours because he's such an interesting guy and there's so much more I wanted to know. So let's dive into Freddie's story. But first... If you'd like to know what's the best way to help support the show, here are a few of the best ways to do so. Number one, you can donate to the Share Podcast. And to do so, you simply go to the website, www.thesharepodcast.com, and click on the top right corner of the website that says Donate, or you can click on any of the yellow banners throughout the website that say Donate via PayPal, and it will take you to our Donate page. All the donations we collect go exclusively to promote, grow, and produce the podcast. So once again, if you have the wherewithal to do so and would like to donate to the Share Podcast, then go to the website, click on the donate button, and make your donation today. The second way to help support the show is to subscribe on your mobile device. If you listen to the Share Podcast on your phone and you click subscribe, you not only get notified... Every time a brand new episode is available, you also help support the show. When you subscribe, it dramatically increases our rankings on iTunes and Stitcher Radio, as well as other podcast platforms on the internet. And while you're at it, go ahead and leave us a five-star rating and review, because I love to read those reviews at the beginning of every episode. And speaking of reviews, this week's review comes from Tatiana1641. The title is Inspiration. I love listening to this daily. I can never get enough of your episodes and the ones that truly impact me, I end up saving and listening to them again and again. HP, baby. Uh, Lately, I have been getting just an outpouring of emails and private messages about the recent podcast episodes. I've had some really amazing guests, uh, Wes Chapman being one that I got a, a ton of messages from just thanking me 
for how impactful it was for them based on Wes's vulnerability and openness. And that's what this is all about. You know, the way we help others is by becoming vulnerable ourselves and creating space for others to become vulnerable as well. So Tatiana, thank you so much. And thank you so much for all the listeners. I love you guys. HP, baby. And the third way to support the show is by joining the Share Recovery Network. That is our Share Podcast private group on Facebook with thousands of members in recovery that are all there for one common purpose, to carry a message of hope. We are a positive, loving, supportive community of individuals who live amazing lives and are here to inspire others to do the same. If you are unsure about what your next step will be towards recovery, then start by joining us in our private Facebook group. So go to Facebook, type in the Share Recovery Network, and become a part of the solution today. Now a quick message from Transitions Daily, and then on to the show. Would you like to join a free, anonymous online group that offers a daily topic email with popular recovery resources accompanied by a secret Facebook group for discussion? Then go to dailyaaemails.com for more information about Transitions Daily. And don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends, in meetings, and with sponsees in recovery. Hey, Freddie, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I'm really excited to have you on the show, brother. How are you feeling today? Great. Excellent, excellent. All right, so ladies and gentlemen, today we have Freddie Negrete joining us on the Share Podcast. And Freddie is uh, profiled on numerous TV programs and magazine articles. East LA gang member Freddie Negrete became an orphan at the age of two and at two and a half years old when his parents, both Pachuco gangsters, ended up in prison one for armed robbery, and the other one for manslaughter. A gifted and natural-born artist, Freddie was transported from the confines of prison cells where using homemade tattoo machines, he honored his craft to become a world-renowned pioneer of black and gray realism. And he also gave me my first tattoo in Isla Vista, California, when I was 20 years old. I am sure you don't remember that. <laughs> <laughs> You know, uh, that's funny. I, I, I didn't even know that. Yeah, yeah, wow, dude. I, I thought I'd throw good. that curveball at you. When Steve hit me up for you to be on the show, and he's like, he started giving me your, your bio, and I'm like, are you kidding me? Freddie gave me my first tattoo <laughs> when I was 20 years. We're talking 25 years ago, brother. <laughs> that's a long time ago, yeah. And those were some crazy days, too. I mean, I was, uh, I was act really hiding from the law, and so I, I chose... Uh, Isla Vista to do my thing. It was like the perfect hideout. But I eventually uh, uh, turned myself in and opened up a tattoo shop in Santa Barbara, and it was quite successful. Wait a minute, wait a minute. So so when I got my tattoo from you in Isla Vista, you were on the run. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It makes it even better part of the story. <laughs> yeah. And Isla Vista, for anybody that doesn't know, it's, it's, it's a crazy little town, college town. And it was a perfect hideout for me, you know? You hardly see any police in there, and nobody knew who I was. So oh, that's amazing that I tattooed you there. <laughs> Dude, how long were you in Isla Vista? Uh, you know, I guess I uh, was tattooing there maybe six months, seven months. And then, you know, I, I started tattooing a lot of professional people from Santa Barbara, real estate people and construction people. And... Uh, they they all agreed to help me open up a tattoo shop in Santa Barbara, 
And I felt, you know, what? I I got to take care of this one thing, you know. <laughs> and uh, I turned myself in, and and they gave me a year in the county jail. Which, you know, the amazing thing, you know, it was a miracle too. When I got into the county jail, you know, I I painted these murals for uh, for this uh, sergeant in uh, in in uh, the receiving part of the jail, and then they uh, they went in the computer and gave me a emergency overcrowded release and I, I got out in like less than three months and I went straight to Santa Barbara and we opened up our tattoo shop. Rata Tattoo it was called. Man, I gotta tell you, that blows my mind. As a matter of fact, it was funny because I remember when my wife and I were watching Ink Master season two, you came out on the episode. Uh it was uh season two, episode eight. Yeah, yeah, I was a guest judge, that's right. And I was like, honey, look, that's the guy who did my tattoo 25 years ago. <laughs> so when I told her I was going to be interviewing you, she was like, get out of here. I go, you will not believe this. This is wild. It's crazy. Um, so so you ended up, so you turned yourself in and you got early release. And then that's when things really started to turn around for you, right? Yeah. Okay, good. Well, listen, we're going to go into the full story of uh, your life. Uh, but first, I just want to find out, or I want you to tell our listeners, what do you do today? What What is your normal daily routine today, including recovery? Well, you know, I I don't have this big, exciting life, but, um, you know, because uh, I've chosen to uh, to work a lot right now to uh, because I have this new focus. Since I've been sober, I have this new focus on my art. And, you know, during my using years, a lot of things changed and I had a little catching up to do. But, you know, so, so my day starts, I, I'm, I really uh, hold, hold fast to the spiritual aspects of, uh, you know, of the other program. Uh, so my day begins with uh, devotion and prayer and a little bit of meditation. And, you know, I stopped going to the gym because I recently got a, a surgery, uh, a defibrillator. So... Really? But uh, that's part of my story. I'll tell you about more about that later. Okay, but, okay. So I'm doing this, uh, I'm going to do this rehab thing, and they're going to set out a, an exercise program that they feel is, uh, would be adequate for me. So then, um, so then basically, uh, I go to work. <laughs> and, uh, so I, I work from uh, 2 p.m., and depending on the size, I try to do two, two big tattoos at night. I usually finish about midnight to 2 a.m., so... A lot of my time is spent in the tattoo shop, but there's a lot of action in there. I meet a lot of people. Uh, we're a sober shop, you know, so we're always encouraging each other and working with each other in that way. Things come in waves, you know, like all of a sudden everybody's got marital problems or somebody goes out, you know. So that's kind of my day throughout the week. I I lead group therapies, you know, at a couple of rehabs. Those are really good for me. I enjoy those so much. And then, you know, I have my, uh, you know, my temple, you know, th that's the rehab where that I went to. It's called Beit Yeshuvah, and but it's also a Jewish temple, you know, so I chose to stay connected, you know, there. Uh, that's one of the places where I lead groups and and uh, my home group, my home uh, meetings there, Laheim on Thursday nights. And I also go to, to Shabbos. Our, our, uh, our Shabbat ceremony is kind of like an AA meeting because... Everybody there is, you know, like involved with recovery. So, so anyways, that's kind of my day. Okay. All right. So did you convert to Judaism? No, I didn't. My mother's Jewish. 
Okay. My mother, uh, she she was uh, part of the that Jewish community that was in East LA in Boyle Heights, and uh, it's an interesting story because you know the, the Jewish community there, uh, they 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 didn't get along much with the Hispanics all around them. They ended up leaving Boyle Heights, but one of the things that bothered them the most, I think, was when their daughters would go with the Suave Pachuco guys. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that was my mom and my dad, you know, and uh, she became a Pachuca gangster. And your mother did, yeah. Okay, as and so, oh man, you, okay, so yeah, we got to save that for for diving into your story. I want all of that. I want all of that. So, so real quick, how much clean time do you have, and when is your anniversary date? Uh, my anniversary date is uh, December twentieth, and so I'm coming up on eleven years. I love it, man. That is fantastic. I love it. All right, so. Before we dive completely into your story, Freddie, just real quickly, tell us how old you were the first time you drank or used drugs, and more importantly, how did they make you feel? Uh, probably the first time I was uh, 12 years old, and I was in a foster home, and I kept running away, so they sent me to a boy's home, and then I went on a weekend furlough you know, with the foster home, and we went up to Big Bear, and... Uh, my foster sister's boyfriend was a real scumbag guy. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> so he went with us on the trip, and he's telling me, "Yeah, so they tell me that you that that you you know your foster parents are saying that you're dabbling around with drugs, you know, and uh, and I, actually I hadn't, but I I said yes, you know, I told him, oh yeah yeah yeah. So anyways, he gave me some pills, like some Red Devil. He gave me one one of those Red Devils, and I was like really out of it and I remember we were at some park and he goes man you got to smoke this so this is a long time ago in the 60s <laughs> because it's it's called Viet Vietnam you know Vietnamese weed or something anyways you know I smoked it and uh, I got terribly sick and I was the word you know I don't know that what happened between the drugs and smoking it and I ruined the whole vacation and we left and it took me straight back to the boys' home. So, my first time getting high was not a not a good experience. No, it doesn't sound like it at all. <laughs> all right, all right, sounds good. All right, so we'll springboard from that. So, what we'll do right now is I want to turn this show over to you, Freddie. I want you to share with us your story: the battle against drugs and alcohol, the wreckage it caused in your life, when you hit rock bottom, and then finally your journey into recovery up until today. So please, Freddie, take it away. Uh, well, you know, a big part of my story is being, you know, a cholo gangster. You know, I went from, you know, uh, the whole foster care and boys' homes and all that stuff, and I joined a gang, and I was very involved with gang activity. I spent most of my juvenile years, you know, in confinement, juvenile hall, camp, youth authority, and... Um, and, you know, I remember then, yes, I used to drink and everything. And but, uh, you know, the older homeboys, when they would get on heroin, they, you know, seeing them nodding out around the neighborhood and then they didn't want to be involved with uh, any of the gang activities. They, <laughs> I, I make it sound like it's a fun thing. <laughs> anyway, right. They didn't want to be involved with our activities. <laughs> so and uh and then also fraternizing with the enemy, you know, like they they would uh, be getting together with the other drug addicts. So I, I kind of looked down on heroin, 
and those things. But, uh, you know, I ended up being a heroin addict anyways. Um, but anyways, you know, then I went to, uh, uh, when I was in youth authority, um, you know, I got in uh, big trouble in there and, you know, they gave me three years, added my time and put me in this program called Tamarack. And, uh, what Tamarack program was, it was like a lockup program for like, uh, the criminally insane kids, you know, the, it was like, there was no more hope for us, you know? And the first they would send us to state prison for 90 days. And then they send us back to this old dungeon-like building in Preston, California, or in Ione, California, at uh, Preston School of Industry. It was like the oldest youth authority building that was being used. And it was like a dark dungeon, you know, with big iron doors and all big granite blocks. Uh, but in there, you know, the staff had, had you know, uh, their policy towards us was one of, uh, if you guys don't kill each other, We'll let you do whatever you want, basically. <laughs> so they brought us pornography uh, and they let us tattoo. And we got the plans for the tattoo machines, you know, from, uh, from I remember, Susanville Prison, how to make a tattoo machine out of a cassette motor. And with the staff letting us do whatever we wanted, we made some really good tattoo machines, tattoo designs. I was already an artist. You know, um, all that time, you know, I, my father's an artist, so I was born with art, art ability. I really developed that uh, ability, you know, all the time being in jail all the time and right. learning Chicano art and really getting good at it. So for the next three years, I just tattooed every day, you know, and even the staff members would lock in my cell and get tattooed, <laughs> you know, so I, I got really good at it, you know. It's funny because... Whenever I do interviews, you know, especially I was on this show called Prison Inc. And uh, when I told them that that the staff let us tattoo in there, it didn't go along with their narrative, you know, because their thing was, oh, you always had to hide from the guards and this and that. You know, so they didn't want to use that part, but it was so significant. I mean, I don't think I would ever, if I didn't go through that program, and if it wasn't in that way, uh, you know, I wouldn't be who I am today. But anyways, um, so when I got out, I immediately set up shop, you know, in my apartment in Pico Rivera. And in East L.A., they had opened up a tattoo shop that was attempting to serve, you know, the, all the gangsters in East L.A. They wanted their tattoos to look like they were done in prison. Right. We hated, you know, traditional style tattooing, you know. It was cartoony and it was simple and we didn't like color. Of course, in prison, we didn't have any color. So that's uh, how, you know, the black and gray thing developed, you know. Right. So anyways, you know, I, I contacted a uh, well, Jack Rudy, or, you know, he, he contacted me and we started communicating. And I was sharing, you know, uh, my design ideas and he was showing me what they were doing professionally. But they didn't offer me a job or anything because tattooing back then was really run by bikers. There was no Chicano, especially a Cholo gangster guy, working at any tattoo shop anywhere, you know? So anyways, when the owner of the shop, Good Time Charlie, when he sold it to Ed Hardy, and Ed Hardy was a different kind of a tattoo artist. He wasn't a biker. He was an educated man, a gifted artist, and he was propelling tattooing into a new era, you know, with introducing the Japanese style to the West. And... Uh, 
And then he discovered, you know, the black and gray, and he was promoting black and gray to the tattoo world at the time. And he said, well, you know, we got to get this guy, Freddie Negretti, in here. And um, so he could relate to these people. And, you know, so he hired me. And then Jack Rudy and I uh, went on to, uh, along with Ed Hardy and, and other names, you know, like Mark Mahoney and Bob Roberts. And, you know, we uh, introduced this new style to the tattoo world uh, called black and gray realism. And, you know, so my life had changed. You know, I went from gangster to all of a sudden having a job. I never thought that, I always thought that I was going to be a, a thug, a criminal, you know. Right. But the thought of not being one never even crossed my mind. <laughs> you know, like, uh, and so my life had changed, you know, and so I decided I should get married and, you know, have a house and have a child and all these things. And um, it seemed like, and something to enhance, you know, all this goodness that's happening around me was a little bit of heroin, you know. And so I started chipping and I eventually got strung out and my life got destroyed. And my marriage was destroyed and, and uh, you know, what happens when you use heroin. And uh, at that time, <clears throat> um, I came in contact with the a group of uh, ex-gangsters or, or whatever, you know, the guys that I knew from prison and and from the system and from the streets. And these guys were carrying around Bibles and preaching God, you know. And, and uh, you know, I joined them, you know, and uh, I converted to Christianity and I was attending Victory Outreach and uh, had a falling out there. It's funny, you know, because... You know, when I first uh, accepted Christ, they, they were telling me, oh, you know what? Uh, you can't be tattooing. That's a sin. And I was like, what? I mean, that's all I know. Right. No, know, you know, uh, that's a sin. You're going to have to quit tattooing, you know. Ugh. And uh, to them, it was an easy thing. Just quit. Right. For me, I was quitting my whole life, you know, the, it was the most profound decision that they were that I had to make, you know. And um, but I, I made the decision. I went ahead and quit. And uh, the pastor of that church had said, look, you know, you're a great artist. You know, you could work. Uh, I'm going to put you on staff full time. Plus, I had printing skills that I learned in Youth Authority. And they had an old offset printer in the basement. So I went in there and, and got that offset running. And I was in the basement drawing up leaflets and and uh, they call them tracks, you know, little, little booklets that you give out. Mm -hmm. And and printing everything up for them, posters and flyers and leaflets and tracks. And so like a couple of months went by and I, I remember telling one of the deacons, you know, the pastor said that, you know, I was going to be full time. You know, uh, I had went back with my wife and everything and was trying to rebuild my life. And I was like, you know, I'm going to, I need to get paid, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and of course he's going, brother, you're doing all this for God and everything. I go, I know, but, the pastor said he was going to put me on full-time staff and, you know, and, you know, I, I, I need to work, you know, I need to make money. I need to support my family anyway. So they arranged a meeting for me to have with the pastor and the pastor's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, you know what we're going to do? We're going to get you uh, one of these government seat slots. And it was a program the government was doing for poor neighborhoods back in the day by funding community centers and churches 
uh, for them to give jobs to local kids and everything, you know. So I thought, Cedar Slot, wow. you know, because they're only good for like three months and it's uh, below minimum wage. But anyways, I agreed. And then it turned out that um, I, I didn't have the correct address. I lived in the area because I lived with my mother-in-law. I lived in an area that the Cedar Slot wouldn't use, you know. They only do poor areas. Right. And so he wanted me to lie, you know, about about my address, you know. And, you know, that that rubbed me the wrong way, you know, really. I argued with him about it, and I just, I couldn't see that because here they're telling me that tattooing is a sin, and I didn't see it really anywhere clearly in the Bible that tattooing is a sin, but I know that, you know, lying is one of the Ten Commandments, you know? Yes. And, and, and then lie to the government, you know, it's just... So anyways, I left, I left that church, you know, I, I couldn't see it. So now I had, I was, I didn't have no job. I wasn't a tattoo artist, but I met these people at, at uh, Youth for Christ. They suggested I go to college. So I went to uh, Azusa Pacific University and I got a degree in biblical literature and, uh, and went out to, you know, start my own, my own thing my own church and things like that. I started doing a lot of street preaching and reaching out to gangsters and thugs and heroin addicts. And then I had a fall, you know, so I went back to using, I backslid as they call it. Yeah. Relapsed. Yeah. Relapse. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways. So, uh, eventually, you know, I went back into tattooing and, uh, pick things up from there i i stopped using but yet i was a a chipper you know like picnics holidays those were the best times for me to use you know right but i i still you know uh ended up getting strung out eventually and then i go on the methadone program and then i'd be on methadone for a year and then i get off you know it was that cycle you know the real change in my life and and when i really uh, discovered God and recovery and all these things came way later when my uh, my son, my youngest son was uh, murdered in gang violence. Oh. And it was this whole thing where I felt so uh, guilty and responsible because, number one, he was living with his mother in, up in Grover Beach, you know, Central California, a nice place. He wanted to come live with me. I went to court, had a custody battle, got custody of him, brought him to L.A. And then I I realized I wasn't much of a good father, you know. I kind of let him do his thing. I was more involved with what I was doing. At that time, I was using speed, you know, and drinking. And anyways, he ended up getting murdered. So you can imagine the amount of guilt that I felt. Was Was he in a gang? Yeah, the same gang as me. So he came in, you took him in, you were distracted, and he found solace with with the gang members. Yeah. And I think he was, you know, because a lot of those gang members, they were the kids of my homeboys, you know? Right. And it was kind of like they were carrying on the the scene, you know? And, and I think he was, like, following in my footsteps, which, you know, made it all worse, you know? So... Would it be okay to uh, tell us what happened? Uh, well, you know, it was uh, like 
a drive-by shooting, you know, it was a gang conflict. Oh, so it was um, just one of those things. Yeah. Gang-related. It was a gang-related shooting, yeah. So anyways, you know, I was devastated, you know, and um, and then I started using heavy. And I had a friend, you know, like, uh, pretty, he's like a wealthy guy, you know, he owns all these construction businesses and stuff, but, you know, he... Uh, he was doing his own escape thing and he came down and rented an apartment in LA and together him and I just, uh, dosed ourselves, you know? Yeah. And I, I would get away, you know, I, I would go down the street and work at the tattoo shop, do a couple of tattoos and then just go right back to, uh, to use, I was using very heavy and, uh, and at the same time having medical problems. So, <clears throat> I uh, I got congestive heart failure, um, you know, because when I got sick, I had to go to the doctor. And uh, at the same time, I was uh, trying to fight a case because I, I got arrested for possession, which was a felony at the time. And so, uh, you know, and I started the medication, you know, for the uh, for the congestive heart failure. But then I stopped taking it because I was using so many so much drugs, you know. Yeah. And, and so then uh, I violated that Prop 36 and I went to prison. So in prison, I still kind of like felt sick, but at least I was getting the medication and I wasn't getting high. And then I, there I found myself tattooing again, you know, in prison with one of those little homemade machines for soup. <laughs> <laughs> I never thought I'd be working for, for soup. soup. <laughs> uh, anyways... And so then I did two years. And then when I came out, uh, you know, Mark Mahoney at Shamrock Tattoo, I told me, hey, come over here and work, you know, because we worked together at Tattoo Mania on, on Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood. And then he opened up his shop down the street, uh, Shamrock Tattoo. And, uh, you know, so when I got out of prison, you know, I, I had my customers and I started tattooing there, but nothing changed, you know. And I didn't even, I didn't even think about changing anything. I went right back to using immediately, you know. So being a tattoo artist makes it a little bit easier to, you know, support a habit because you get paid cash every day, you know. So you have the cash to get your drugs that you need for the day, you know. You don't have to go out stealing or trying to get money advanced or whatever, you know. I had this habit going, but then I felt sick again, like I was feeling like really sick. But I didn't really want to say anything. But man, I I, I couldn't even breathe that night. You know, right. like um, heart was enlarged. And uh, anyways, I got arrested again, like clockwork. And and when I went into the county jail, um, you know, the withdrawals along with my existing condition just uh, wreaked havoc on on my body. I mean. I couldn't even take a couple of steps. They put me in a wheelchair at the county jail. Oh wow! I couldn't even I couldn't even take a couple of steps without gasping for air, and I couldn't lean back. You know, so what happened? My heart was so enlarged, and it was work, pumping at under ten percent. So my body wasn't getting any oxygen. You know, and my lungs were in failure. My liver was in failure, and uh, I was a real mess. And it, it, you know, I remember you know like sitting right there and i remember i told my son 
I didn't want anybody to visit me because I didn't want him to see me like that. I had lost so much weight and my complexion was like gray. And I was certain that I was going to die in there. And I, I was like, what a life, man. What, did, what have I done to myself? It's one thing to get sick, but it's another thing, you know, drug-induced heart, heart failure, you know. It's like yep. I did this to myself, you know. Plus, and I still had all the regrets with my son. I mean, I was a mess, but I'd look around me and see these other inmates, you know, laughing, doing push-ups and everything, you know. And uh, it just, I was just so depressed, you know. And then uh, then I had a heart attack, and they, they took me to uh, the county general, you know, the general hospital, the jail ward. And I was there for a week, and they sent me back to the jail, you know, in a wheelchair. But, uh, you know, the sheriffs in there, I always tattooed sheriffs. You know, I knew them from when I was in the county jail. They always knew me. And whenever I was out, they'd come to me and I'd tattoo them, you know. Or I'd design things for them. Or I'd paint murals in the jail, you know. But anyway, so they would go to the hospital and take me out and put me in the Paisa dorm. The Paisa dorm is is where they put the uh, immigrants, you know, the uh, undocumented workers and they put them in a dorm because they did all the work in the jail. <laughs> <You know? laughs> they couldn't they couldn't have the homies or anybody else out because they'd be out trying to start riots and selling drugs and everything. But the paisas, it's funny, you know, I was in their dorm with them. They were so cool. But, you know, they were serious about their jail jobs, you know, <laughs> and they would have meetings and reprimand each other for doing a bad job. So. <laughs> it was amazing. That's awesome. So anyway, the, I wish we all had that work ethic. So anyways, you know, um, so then they sent me back and the sheriffs would get me out of the hospital, put me in the Paisa dorm. They'd bring me food from the outside. You know, they they were really, they saw how sick I was and they were trying to help me. And then I had another heart attack and went back to the hospital, you know, and they were, always had me on watch. So as soon as I told them, I got breathing, whatever, they would, uh, you know, make sure that I was out of there quick. And so, so after the second time and I was back in the jail, I, um, I remembered a story, you know, that, uh, from my, my, uh, when I was in college, uh, in the old Testament about this King who, uh, I guess God was angry with them. He sent a prophet to him to tell him, um, you know, get your affairs in order because your life is, is over, you know? And, um, your, your time is up, or your number's up, whatever. <laughs> and and that king decided to go over the prophet's head and talk to God himself. And he went in seclusion, and he he asked God for more time, and God gave him 15 more years. So that story resonated with me at the time, and I was like, you know what? I want to talk to God. I want to talk to God and ask God for more time, you know? And I, I needed to be alone somewhere where I could not be distracted and talk to God, you know? And uh, so the only place was up these two little flights of stairs to the shower room, and there was nobody up there. Uh, and and I remember it taking me like a half an hour to get pull myself up those stairs, you know? Hmm. So I made it up there. And I basically said, God, I'm not going to make any promises, you know, because, yeah, we've all prayed and we're thinking, God, if you, if you do this for me, 
I'll never do this again. Da 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 da. And I just, I got, I can't make make any promises because I know that I'll just break them. But I'm asking you, please, for a little more time to redeem myself, so that I won't die right here in this county jail, so that I could be an example to my son, you know, my living son. And um, you know, and it was short, sweet, and direct, you know. And I really, afterwards, I really felt like, like I talked to God, you know. I felt more like than just getting on your knees and praying. I felt like I had a conversation with God. But the next morning, I had a heart attack. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. Oh, shit. So it's like that big stamp, you know, coming down. Bam. Yeah. Just denied. <laughs> you know? Oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, right? And, you know, that's how I should have felt. You know, I should have felt like, like my request was denied. And I remember, you know, uh, when they were putting me in the ambulance and of course they're giving me the nitroglycerin and trying to find a vein for the IV. And, you know, it's this, it was the same ambulance drivers that took me to the hospital, the, the, you know, cause the jail has like their own, uh, drivers. And, uh, and I remember that he was going, don't ever feel bad about going to the hospital. You have a legitimate reason. You know, he's telling me this, and I was like, you know what, you're the coolest dude. When I get out, I want you to go to Shamrock Tattoo. I'm going to give you a free tattoo. Hmm. For some reason, I felt like I was going to get out one day. All the other times, and the whole time I was in jail, I was certain that I was going to die. Now, all of a sudden, I was certain that I was going to live. And uh, I don't know. My feeling is that that faith came from God. You know, like... I'm a man and I'm, I'm a simple man and I don't understand much. And when I need faith, I think God gives, you know, when we need faith, God gives us the faith that we need, you know, yes. as a gift. And, uh, and I really felt different. So, you know, I went to the hospital. I was in the hospital about three weeks that time. But with each passing day, and I was taking like 15 different meds, you know, with each passing day, I was feeling better and better. And after the, uh, three weeks, the doctor was saying, you know, you're really showing some good improvements. We're going to send you back to the jail. So uh, so I went back to the jail uh, and, you know, they put me in the hospital and then my, my boys came and got me out, put me back in the Paisa dorm. And uh, everybody was saying, dude, you look so much better. Look at you, you know. And now all of a sudden I could lay back and sleep, you know, uh, before I had to stay propped up. And and, you know, I started, you know, I was like really feeling better. You know, I went to the roof, you know, when they, that's where they have the yard time. You know, I even shot a couple of baskets, you know. And so every week they would take me to the hospital uh, every Tuesday, actually, to have the doctors check up on me. So so, uh, you know, so each week I would go and they check on me. So after about. Uh, three weeks, probably the fourth week, you know, I was telling the doctor that I started doing push-ups, you know, and he was going, push-ups? You're doing push-ups? <laughs> I mean, they had me in the county jail in a wheelchair chrono, you know, and uh, I was telling him, yeah, and, I, and then uh, he goes, show me, <laughs> you know, so I, 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 I could only do five, you know, but I went down and did a couple for him, he was going, 
you know, this is a really amazing. And he goes, uh, he goes, I'm going to have you come back and we're going to redo all the tests, you know, the echogram and when they shoot the die, you know, and test my heart, all the initial tests that they gave me. So I went back and I got all the tests. And then the next week I went back, you know, uh, after the test and, and I was, so when I got there, there was a bunch of doctors and interns there, you know, and each one took turns listening to my heart and stuff. And it was kind of weird. I was like, mm, you know, and then they all left. And then the one doctor that always sees me, he said, yeah, you know, um, you know, we've all, we all know about, you know, hearts, uh, uh, repairing themselves you know most of us have never seen it but here let me show you your chart now he wants to show me my chart <laughs> <laughs> you know they don't tell you nothing you know it's, oh you're gonna show me my chart okay i think the one thing uh one of the doctors had told me in there was like i just don't see how you can go on without a heart transplant right and and you know what i told him i said I just don't see how me being a prisoner, they're going to give me a transplant. <laughs> <laughs> so anyways, uh, he showed, he goes, basically your heart was like this. It was enlarged nearly out of the cavity and it was barely pumping. And, uh, and you know, your, your lungs and your liver were in failure. And uh, now your heart has reduced in size, which is very uncommon. And it's now beating at 30% instead of under 10%. And he said 30 to 70% is in the normal range. And I told him, you know what? I think, I think God healed my heart <sighs> and has given me more time. You know? And, uh, and the doctor said, I think your body healed your heart. <laughs> And your heart has given you more time. <laughs> and I was like, whatever, dude. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay, so so now I had so all the while, even after that prayer, I somehow knew in my heart that I was never gonna use again. I was convinced of this. And I know you're not even supposed to think like that. And I still didn't know anything about the program or any of this stuff. But in my heart, I felt like I was never going to use again. And uh, but I just had to find out how. <laughs> <laughs> and and um, so at the time, once I started recovering, you know, uh, you know, the, the sheriff deputies are like, hey, the captain wants you to uh, paint uh, a mural on that floor, it was the second floor in the old county jail. I was like, yeah, sure. So, so I painted this big, beautiful mural and, uh, and you know, there was a little controversy because the ACW, whatever, American Civil Liberties Union had come in because, uh, you know, um, some of uh, some of the inmates had said that, because I did the Archangel Michael with, with the devil, mm -hmm. slaying the devil. Because the Archangel Michael is the, you know, police uh, patron saint of of uh, police officers, right? And uh, and and I'm even though I made the devil look like a creature because I made him like dark red, they felt like I was portraying a white European with the head on a black devil, you know. So there was like controversy with that, and and uh, 
and you know the captain himself came and talked to me and and so I redid it you know to make it acceptable for everybody and then he asked me about uh you know doing pinstriping on box cars because they had box cars race, races some outreach program that the sheriff department was doing for kids you know so we brought all these box cars in and I wrote the kids' names on them and I pinstriped them. And then he had me do another big mural, you know, like this tombstone mural. So all the while when I was going to court, you know, uh, my public defender was telling me, well, you, you know, you just had to plead guilty and uh, they're going to give you the two years. And I was like, I don't, I don't want to go to prison. I want to go to rehab. And they're, well, they're not going to send you to rehab. And, uh, and I go, well, I'm not going to plead guilty. And they go, well, they got you dead bang. You were on parole and they had every right to search you and they found drugs, you know, what's your defense? And then I said, look, can you just get things postponed? Just postpone it. Because what if I get a letter from, from a sergeant or something? Cause I was thinking the sergeant that I would recommend that. She goes, they don't do that. They don't write, write recommendation letters, you know? And I'm just like, just get me the the uh just give me the extension you know right so anyways so she got me another two-week uh extension because i had already had extensions because of my heart condition so anyways i talked to the sergeant and the captain's name was uh captain homestead uh he was like no he was running to be sheriff the sheriff at one point so a lot of people know know that name so i told her hey do you think captain homestead would uh you know, talk to me. Uh, she goes, what about? And I go, well, I want to see if I can get a letter because I don't think me going back to prison is going to serve any good purpose. And I really want to go to, to a rehab, you know? She goes, well, you know, we don't write letters like that. And I go, can you just, you know, arrange for me to talk to him? She goes, well, he's not even here anymore. And uh, she goes, he's been promoted to commander of all the jails. And I was like, oh, Wow. And she goes, but if I see him, I'll talk to him. So the next time I went to court, <clears throat> the public public defender came in and she goes, I don't know what you did, but the judge dug through all the files, pulled yours out and said, this guy's going to rehab. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so I imagine uh, Captain Homestead did something for me. Right. And, uh, you know, of course, I'll say God. Captain Homestead would say he did it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say God too. I'd say God too. Yes. And so, so then, uh, then, you know, uh, a friend of ours at the tattoo shop and a Mark Mahoney's, uh, Andrew Wasser was the head therapist at Beit Shuva, And <clears throat> Mark, he had mentioned to Mark, you know, um, Freddie's mother's Jewish, you know, they'll, they'll take him in Beit Shuva. Now, Beit Shuva, it's a Jewish rehab and it's privately run and everything. That doesn't mean that they won't accept, you know, anybody else. You don't have to be Jewish to go in there. You just have to accept Judaism as one of their three prong of uh, recovery. You know, it's uh, uh, psychotherapy, 12 steps, and Judaism. Okay. But uh, because my mother was Jewish and I'm Jewish... Uh, you know, it wouldn't be an issue of them, you know, getting me in. And so uh, everything went beautifully. And I got into Beit Shuva, 
I went in there and I I learned a little bit about my past, you know, heritage of uh, being Jewish because I didn't I, I wasn't you know religious Jew at all. My mom died when I was very young, so I didn't know anything about it. So I got the opportunity to learn a little something of my heritage. I did the twelve steps. I did every aspect of the program. When I went in there, you know, I was determined to do everything they asked me. I was going to go. I'd never been to rehab before. I never even tried to quit, you know, really. My thing was just uh, I can't be strung out, you know. I can use every once in a while, but I can't be strung out. And, uh, and you know, that, that program, uh, you know, how they say it works if you work it, mm-hmm. worked amazingly for me. You know, like my life was just changing right before my eyes. Um, some of the, the beneficial things, you know, the therapy – because I really had to learn how to deal with uh, my son's death, you know, and how to uh, deal with the guilt that I felt, you know. When when uh, when I was on heroin, I didn't care about anything, you know, especially when he first had died. It's like I'd wake up in the morning just bawling my eyes out, feeling like suicide, and uh, I'd do a shot, and and I didn't care. And care about nothing, you know. So that, you know, along with a lot of other things, but that was really at the core of uh, what I needed to deal with to learn to stay sober. And so I, I, um, um, you know, I opened up, and I had to learn to deal with my son's death, uh, deal with the death in general, um, except, you know, uh, my my part. Um, the reason for me feeling guilty about it, accept that. And, and now what I do, whether my son can see me or not, I live my every day as if he's watching down and I want my every move to be one that would make him proud. You know, like would this, my son's watching me, would this make him proud? Oh man. So, uh, it's been quite a journey. Another thing, thing that I, you know, uh, of course, I think the the best thing that, you know, uh, a part of the program was the 12 steps. That's The 12 steps are amazing. And, um, and so that's what really gave me the fuel, you know. Um, but other things that really helped me, like that therapy, but also uh, learning a little bit about Eastern meditation, you know. Uh, breathing exercises and focusing, you know, uh, learning to focus, you know. And that's one of the things that I really had to do because I had to focus now on um, my career and who I am as a person and uh, and what I do, you know. And that brings me up to today. Man, I got to tell you, brother. That is such a powerful story, and I know that the listeners need to hear this and and to know that no matter how far down the rabbit hole you go, when you make that choice to reach out to God and ask for grace, but it comes from a place of love, it comes from a place of absolute surrender, it comes from a place of, of, of just desperation, where you're willing to do whatever it takes to get clean and sober and... There was no point in your story where I didn't think 
that once you reached out, that it wasn't God guiding you through the rest of this, guiding you through the rest of your story and getting you to where you are today, that powerful moment in jail where you just think you're going to die. And, and there's no logical or rational explanation to how your heart repaired itself except for, you know, there's no question in my mind that, you know, God answered your prayers, man. You're absolutely a walking miracle today. I believe that. I believe that with all my heart. I mean, I saw it. I experienced it. And the doctors saw it, you know. Um, yeah. They had their own take on it. But, you know, your heart is one of those things that when it's damaged, it doesn't repair itself, uh, like your liver or maybe some of your other organs. So uh, for them to see my heart reverse itself, and, and it wasn't something that just happened like that. You know, because like I said, I had a heart attack the next day, but it was something that gradually, you know, happened. And all the while, I just felt like God was working in my body. It's, you know, just so amazing. Yeah. And best part is, after all that, the part about your son, where you just, your life today is an ongoing, is an ongoing amends in honor of your son, that he's watching you. And you ask yourself every day, is this honoring my son's memory? And that is a powerful way to not only forgive yourself, but make that true amends to yourself, to the world around you, to your family, to your other sons, to the entire world, basically. You know, you can take one of the most tragic moments of your life that for some people is going to catapult them into either more drug use or suicide or, or, or violence, you know, and you, and you completely went the other way, man. And I think that there's people that struggle with that idea. I was going to ask you, I was going to ask you how you coped with your son's death and how you forgave yourself, you know, um, and, so, and, and that's how you did it. And that's, that's another beautiful part of this entire story. That's really, I, I think, like I said, that was at the core of it. If I wanted to stay sober and I wanted to do this, then I needed to deal with something that was ripping me to shreds inside and uh, made me not want to face my life. I guess at that point, drugs had become, you know, an escape. You know, there's drugs come in to fill so many voids, you know, like uh, happiness of partying, you know, fun, fun time or enjoying your work more or whatever it is. But uh, the bottom line is uh, the thing that that really grabs us is uh, the escape part, you know? Yes. And uh, it's like when things are going bad, that's usually when people use, when things are going bad in their life, you know? And um, so I'm thankful, you know, that I saw that I needed to deal with and I'm thankful for the people that helped me through it and continue to help me through it today, so... Well, I, I want to springboard into a more positive note. But first of all, I want to just tell the story of when I was in Isla Vista, I was 21 years old. We were on our way, a bunch of us, my sister, her friends, some of my friends, we were on our way to Mexico to spend the week, to spend the weekend in, in Mexico. I think we we're going to, to, to Tijuana. And uh, I said, man, I'm going to go and get my first tattoo. <laughs> And my sister's friends were like, why would you go to Mexico to get your first tattoo? Right? And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> it just seems like we're going to Mexico. Let me just do it there. And one of my friends like said, man, there is a badass tattoo artist that just got out of prison. <laughs> that's, doing, that's doing tattoos. And I said, well, let's go meet with him. So I go over there. And you were like, 
yeah, man. All right, what do you want? I'm like, I don't know. He goes, well, go look at my book over there and see what you want. And I saw this this lion head that that was really cool. And he's like, all right, well, come back, you know, in a few hours, man. Come back like a, around midnight. And I was like, okay, whatever, right? <laughs> I, like, I waited till two o'clock in the morning. Oh. Yeah, and it was, full, dude. I was, I was like, I'm not leaving. I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get this tattoo, right? And uh, you were down for it too, man. You were like, whatever, let's go. Yeah, just give me a minute. Yeah, I think you were drinking a Heineken and smoking a, a joint, right? And I just remember thinking, man, I don't know if this is the right move, right? Just <laughs> and it came out spectacular. It was it was beautiful. It was beautifully done, black and gray, you know. And I remember you saying, okay, yeah, that's that's the that's the. That's the outline of it, right? But don't worry, I'm going to dial it in. The shading's going to be badass. You're going to like it. <laughs> and did I take another break? <laughs> <laughs> no, man. Once you got started, dude, you just jammed through it. You just jammed through it. It was it was I was it was an, a beautiful and awesome experience and uh and I loved it, you know, and I and I know that that was, you know, the, what you did and how you did it, all the passion of it just came into your work. That's where you find the fulfillment. So you know, through your journey when, you know, part of it when you were talking about how they said, you know, you can't tattoo anymore. And I'm like thinking, thank God he went back to tattooing because uh, it's one of the things that I love the most. That's why I watch Ink Master so much. Uh, how was that experience? That's what that's my favorite show. One of my favorite shows is Ink Master. How was that experience? And are you close with those guys? Are you close with, uh, you know, with Chris Nunez and, and, and Oliver? Oh, yeah. I've known those guys for years. But let me just say uh, real, real fast and then I'll tell you my experience over there. Well, you know, about about the, uh, you know, the Christian church saying, oh, you can't tattoo your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit and uh, you can't mark your temple and blah, blah, blah. But then, you know, later I in, in Judaism, I realized that, uh, you know, the the tefillin, it's the little box that they put on their hand and they wrap that leather strap around the arm and then they put it on their forehead, too. It's called a tefillin. I don't know if you're familiar with that. No. Uh-uh. And there's there's prayers in that little leather box Well, it comes from a passage where. Uh, you know, God uh, tells his people that I will print the name of Jerusalem on my hand and my forehead so that you will know that I will never forsake you. So if God has a tattoo, <laughs> then it's okay for me to tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if it's written in Hebrew. Oh, man, I am, I am down with that. <laughs> I don't need justification to uh, to do what I do. I feel I feel strong about it, but uh, if anybody ever asks me, I tell them that story. Yeah, about Ink Masters, that was that was a great experience. You know, uh, uh, Alex, I, I I had just met, but Oliver Peck, I knew. You know, he's he's a legend, and uh, and we kind of all know each other because of uh, tattoo shows and things like that. And whenever a, a new tattoo artist comes on a scene, that's really good. Everybody wants to know about them and and know them, you know, and they talk about them. So among tattoo artists, you know, we have our own tattoo celebrities, but he. He's always been a really cool guy and uh, always been a friend. And he's a great artist at, at his style that he does. And then David Navarro, he's the one that actually got me on the show. Dave Navarro is a good friend of mine, too. And I've, I've done a lot of work on him. And uh, so and when we did the that episode, it was on my birthday, you know, so the production got me a big cake and stuff. So it was just a lot of fun. And, you know, I'm not I always told myself. Uh, about reality shows i don't like reality shows but i realized the reason i didn't like them was because i wasn't on it 
<laughs> as soon as you were on it, it was cool, huh? Yeah, that's what I that's what I found out. So I did a few more, you know, like uh, Tattoo Rescue, and then of course uh, our documentaries, uh, Tattoo Nation. Uh, we did uh, the big one, Marked, you know, for the History Channel, Prison Inc. You know, so you know, I got the opportunity to to do a few things like that, and it's always fun. You know, and uh, and you know, I don't mind the reality shows at all. But I, I especially like Ink Masters. I know, like uh, with uh, some of these shows, like Black Ink and LA Ink and things like that, they need drama. You know, like yeah. So for an artist, you know, like I want to see what tattooing they're doing. You know, and I don't want to see drama. But really, people want to see drama. They get into that. So Ink Masters has a different way of portraying the drama. Yes. And it's all centered around this competition. Yes. And people trying to do their best and be their best and their mistakes being pointed out. And, you know, the humility, you know, that we need is learned, you know. Beautiful. So I really like I really like that that show. Yeah. Yeah. And I can imagine that uh, Dave would be one of your biggest fans and customers because he's all black and gray, you know. So. So, yeah. And he's got he's got a lot of great work on him. He's got good work, but it's all Dave stuff, you know. His tattoos are all really weird, you know. So he'll ask me to do something that I normally wouldn't do, but you know, it doesn't even matter to me because uh, to me, uh, you know, as as an artist, yeah, I could try to get everybody to get what I want to do, but then that's not challenging. So I I feel like the challenge is when a person says, you know, I want this or that, and I don't know, I kind of want it like that. So I like creating that for them. And trying to make their vision, you know, a reality. And if somebody says, wow, you know what? I had it in my mind, but I didn't realize it like this. Then, you know, I did my job, you know. So, unfortunately, you know, uh, I'm working on a on a talking canvas that has opinions. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine, a, you know, a great master working on a canvas that's saying, no, 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 I don't want to. Would you move that over here? Make it smaller. <laughs> <laughs> a talking campus it's so true get out of your own way man let me do this <laughs> yeah. so anyways. all right that's good that's good so listen let, tell us a little bit about uh smile now cry later you've got this biography coming out that was one of the reasons why steve hit me up uh so how did that get started and when is that going to launch and and you know what's the story on that Okay, well, first of all, it's already been launched, and it's available on Amazon and, and uh, local bookstores. A lot of independent bookstores carried it, are carrying it. And uh, so uh, one of the groups that I – I don't know if you've heard of uh, Criminal Gangster Anonymous. No, I have not. DGA. <laughs> Is that a real thing? Yeah, it's a real thing, you know. And um, you know how everything – you know, like it was AA and then NA and then CEA and then different things. But this uh, Criminal Gangsters – Anonymous, I, I kind of like it. It was established on the SNY yards in prison. And uh, and their thing is, uh, you know, maybe they're not drug addicts or whatever, but they're addicted to the game, you know, mm, yeah. addicted to criminal activity. And that's what keeps drawing them back in. Most of them are dope dealers, you know, as opposed to being dope users, you know. So anyways, it's a it's a pretty good program. And they got their thing going and, and they like they like to have me speak because I have I could I can uh, go into my whole gangster spiel, you know, in prison. And uh, so, anyways, 
So this uh, girl, this uh, friend of mine that was I was in rehab with, her grandmother's like this famous uh, personality in in England, uh, actually a mobster. And so this this uh, guy that was writing a screenplay for a feature they were doing on her was here in California. He's from uh, England, and and uh, interviewing her mother, and she she met him, and he's a real nice guy. His name was Steve Jones, and apparently she told him, "Hey, you know this guy." is speaking tonight at the at this criminal gangsters anonymous meeting uh you should come out and hear his story you know so he came out and he heard my story and uh i was happy to see her i hadn't seen her in a while and we all went out you know for coffee and 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 uh something to eat after and uh and him and i got to talking he was telling me about this the work he was doing on that that project and other projects that he's done he's a screenwriter and um and then I started talking to him about, I was thinking about wanting to, you know, write a book. You know, he didn't show any interest, you know, uh, like, like, hey, I'll write it or anything like that. And I, I don't even think I was, you know, thinking of, uh, you know, I don't think I was telling him about it to approach him about writing it. But it had been in my mind for quite some time. And I was wondering, how can I go about this? Because, you know, I'd love to write a book. And and uh, but I'm not a, a you know a writer. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just get out. Let's get that out. <laughs> I'm not a writer. <laughs> anyways, anyway, good a good talk. Anyway, he he was, and he's been in recovery for years, a lot of years. And uh, anyways, he was driving up to San Francisco to interview the next person for the book for uh, the project he was working on, and. Uh, he said it just hit him like a ton of bricks. You know what? I'm going to write this guy's story. And uh, he gave me a call. You know, the next when he got to San Francisco, he gave me a call and he said, hey, you know, because we exchanged numbers and everything. He goes, you know what? He goes, I've never written, you know, uh, a biography or anything like that before. You know, I'm a screenwriter. But I want to write your book. And I was like, whoa, okay. And so we got together and we started talking about it. And then we both had to learn, you know, how, how to go about it from there. Um, but the first thing we did was uh, like three years of, of interviews. You know, we, we knew what we had to do in order to, you know, get a book published. You know, you, you need a, a, an agent. In order to get an agent, you need a proposal. And so uh, the first thing we did was all the interviews to get the story right. And we took a lot of time on that. And then in the proposal, you have to write a paragraph on each, chap each chapter. And then you have to write two full chapters. Then you have to say, you know, who's uh, the audience that you're uh, appealing to? You know, who who's going to read this book? Who can we sell it to? Why should this story be told? Blah, 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 on and on. And uh, and that, that question, why should this story be told? You know, because people ask me that question a lot. Like, the first question is, okay, wh why did you want to write a book? You know, and, uh, you know, so I, I think about those things. You know, first of all, um, you know, I come from the, the Chicano gangster cholo culture, uh, the culture that started the lowrider cars, graffiti, you know, the Pendletons and the khakis and all that whole style. And there's a fascination with that, you know, so... People want to know about that, and I lived it, you know. So, 
that's a part of my story that is appealing to people. Then there's the whole prison life. You know, people are fascinated with prison life, especially California prison, because, you know, so many things have come out of California prison, not just tattooing, but language, you know, prison talk, just uh, uh, racial barriers, all these things, you know, that come from a California state prison. And so there's that interest, you know, and uh, then there's the tattoo thing, you know. Um, I happen to be uh, considered a pioneer of one of the most popular styles worldwide in the tattoo world, and that's black and gray realism. So there was that. But I would say, but most of all, most importantly, it's a story of redemption. It's a story of God. It's a story of a life destroyed and rebuilt. You know, and that's the most important part of this book. And why I want to tell this story is, is because hopefully I can help somebody else that is in a similar situation. You know, we all have different situations, but it's all the same when you're at rock bottom, you know. And, and so that, that's what this book is about. It's redemption. No. And so, so anyways, uh, and we had trouble along the way, you know, so we, we uh, did all the interviews, uh, we wrote the proposal, and uh, then we tried to find an agent, and we, we, you know, everyone we reached out to would, would say, oh, you know, it doesn't look like a fit for us, blah, blah, blah. And then finally, the, this, uh, the, actually the CEO of uh, a fine print, herself and said, you know what, I'm going to represent you guys myself. So when things like that happen, I always feel like that's where God comes in. Yes. Like, like nobody wanted to, to represent us. And all of a sudden this woman out of the blue said, I have to do it. And she happened to be the CEO of the company. Then there was trying to find a publisher, which was another beast because it was the same thing. Nobody wants to do your story. And everybody's writing books, you know? Yes. So we wanted a major publisher, you know? But we had a, we had another plan just in case, you know, the, Luis Rodriguez, the author of Always Running, you know, uh, he also wrote the forward for my book. And uh, he was saying, hey, I got a small press thing. You know, we could, st- if, if, if worse comes to worse, you know, we'll run it ourselves and start getting it out there and see about picking up a publisher you know, after, you know, so, and then uh, all of a sudden we got a call. Oh, yeah, we even had one, like, powerhouse. Uh, They wanted to do the book, but they're saying, you know, we want to do a book, but we want it to be a picture book with your tattoo work and then just some pages of text, you know, telling your story. And Steve and I were like, nah, nah. Because this isn't about a tattoo story, right. you know. This is about my story, which tattooing has to be is is involved because I'm a tattoo artist. But this is not a tattoo story. So, anyways, we turned that offer down. And I remember our agent was saying, "Look, it's good money up front, but blah, blah blah blah." You know, like you're turning down a, a a good deal, you know. Anyways, so we turned that down. But then, when all hope seemed lost, all of a sudden we got a call. You know, from uh, from Seven Stories Press, you know, uh, Random House is our distributor. And, you know, the 
the you know the 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 owner of the whatever the CEO has said, look, I haven't even read your 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 proposal, but when my chief editor comes and says we have to do this book, then we do this book, you know. So, anyways, uh, and it's it. It does really well, you know, among the tattoo community. Um, I'm, uh, I'd like to see uh, more people in the recovery world. Yes. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Why we have this opportunity, I, I would like, uh, you know, to uh, reach out to, to that potential. And, um, and then more, you know, with, uh, like I have another friend who's telling me that he does work with uh, youth in trouble, like in juvenile halls and things like that. I think it'd be a good outreach tool for for them. So, you know, uh, basically puts it out, and uh, they do a little bit of promotion. You do some book signings, and you do some talks and things like that. But basically, here's your book. It's your story. It's your legacy. Now sell it. You know. <laughs> so. I got to tell you, Freddie. Every aspect of your story is God. Like, as far as I'm concerned, as you're going along, everything has to do, um, your life uh, took the needed turn of events the moment you asked him to help you, the minute you asked God to to come into your life and to, to help you, right? And it wasn't a bullshit yes. prayer. It wasn't, you know, hey, get me out of this jackpot and I'm never going to do it again. You know, it came from deep down in your soul, and since then, it's just been a, a, a constant series of God shots along the way. Um, I'm a big God guy. I'm I'm uh, I'm not religious, but I'm very spiritual. Uh, I have a belief in God. I have a belief in a higher power, and that's the same higher power that I reached out to in the depths of despair, where you know uh, all hope was lost, and I just wanted to die. I just wanted it to end because the pain was just too much and I didn't see any way out, you know? So I, you know, I, I just, I, and I was like, either help me get clean or help me get out of here, you know, take me out of this world. And I felt the next day that hand of God reach out to me. And, and, and I know you felt that too. It's funny because it starts from the heart attack, but the heart attack was just the catapult. Uh, I was, that was, maybe that was God giving you your new heart. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's yeah. a million ways to look yeah, at it, bro. Yeah. I, I do believe though that that you know because one of the things you know when when I had uh, you know had that talk with God and everything I, I have enough uh, religious background to know that what they how they say about faith you know um, without faith it's impossible to please God and and if you had the faith of a mustard seed you could move this mountain and all these you know verses but I strongly believe in my heart that you know I knew I didn't have that faith. And uh, I don't think any human does, but because I I made that move because I had enough to even ask him, you know, I, I believe he gave me the faith that I needed to uh, to to heal my body, you know. Yes, absolutely. And you know the like uh, the groups that I have, they're they're uh, they're spiritual groups. The the one rehab, you know. Uh, even calls it that spirituality with Fred and Negretti. And, um, and, you know, and I found it in, because I've been doing, doing these groups now for like eight years, but I, I found that one of the biggest hangups with uh, newcomers and, 
people that don't get the program is is the God aspect of it. Yep. You know, and uh, and you know, and I try to I try to do it in a way that's to steer them away from religion. You know, because I'm not religious at all either, but I'm very spiritual, and I do ask God daily to help me live an upright life. You know, yes. like uh, I think it's more. There's more to it than just staying sober. It's about making the right decision. It's about how you treat other people, you know. Um, you know, so there's a lot more that has to do with it. But I try to get people, these kids, you know, get their minds off of religion and and to sh- to lead them into their own personal experience with God. And they'll discover, uh, you know, a relationship that's a lot different than uh, what most religions prescribe. You know, yes. And yes. Th- there's this. Uh, can I recommend? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's get to that one. Let's do this. Let's start closing up, Freddie, because I have some closing questions that I have specifically for the newcomers that I want you to answer uh, and hopes to inspire them and give them your words of of, of wisdom. Um, but first, if somebody wants to get tattooed by Freddie Negretti, or if somebody wants to get your book, what's the best way for them to find you? What's the name of your shop? What's your website? Give us all your information. Okay, so uh, my Instagram, I'm going to put that out there first, <laughs> because that's the best way to do the, you know, the work that I'm doing. But my Instagram is Freddie underscore Negretti. It's F-R-E-D-D-Y underscore Negretti, N-E-G-R-E-T-E. Um, you know, my book is Smile Now, Cry Later, uh, Guns, Gangs, and Tattoos, My Life in Black and Gray. And uh, you can get that right off of Amazon. And and to uh, have me, I tattoo at Shamrock Tattoo in West Hollywood. Um, it's easy to make an appointment. Uh, you can just call uh, Shamrock Tattoo. 310-271-9664 and tell them you want an appointment with Freddie Negretti and uh, they'll go over about what you want and things like that. You'll get my number. You'll be able to contact me and send me your your, your uh, images, your ideas and all those things. You just have to make the appointment first. You know, I'm not, you know, once you make the appointment, you're locked in and I'll give you my undivided attention. And uh, I'm booked up for about three, four months. So, you know, uh, you know, getting a tattoo for me within a year is, is feasible. And, um, and I'm on Facebook, Freddie Negretti. That's about it. Perfect, perfect. I'm going to have all this listed on the show notes. You'll be able to easily get a hold of Freddie. Just go to the Share Podcast show notes for Freddie, and all of his contact information will be listed. All right, so let's dive right into the questions. So, Freddie, number one, what was keeping you from getting clean or staying clean when you first got introduced to recovery? You know, I th- I think uh, God and my commitment, you know, the commitment inside my heart that I was never going to use again. But I, like I said, you know, I know I'm never going to use again, but now I need to find out how. <laughs> so, um, you know, that my experience... You know, in in uh, in treatment, and and I support all these treatment programs. I think they're doing a wonderful job. I wish uh, some of them were more affordable, and I understand there's a lot of, you know, that's a whole issue. But you know, um, 
I really think uh, that spiritual walk, you know. Yep. That's that's what what got me in the right direction from the very start. All right. And so number two, at what point did you have a spiritual awakening, that aha moment in recovery when you accepted that you were powerless over drugs and alcohol, but for the first time had developed the hope that you could recover? I think it was upstairs when I had that prayer with God, when I asked for more time, because it was right around then where I knew I was never going to use again. That And, you know, I had an amazing spiritual recovery, so much so that when I had a heart attack, I continued to believe it, you know, and 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 uh, see that, that awakening, you know. So I think that was the point. That was really the turning point for me. Beautiful, beautiful. It was, and a beautiful part of your story. I love it. Uh, so here we are. Number three, do you have a favorite book or video that you would recommend to our newcomers uh, that you read or you saw in early recovery or even now? You know, the book that, that helped me a lot at first, you know, it was the first book I read. Um, I don't get a chance to read as much as I really like to, but but uh, it, it was uh, by my rabbi, Rabbi uh, Mark Horowitz. And um, uh, the name of the book is uh, A Holy Thief. And his story is just amazing. But his wife is in the book. She has a book coming out, too. And uh, and their, their story is just amazing. He was like a real, real gangster, like a Jewish gangster guy. And he did some real low-life shit. And uh, there's my first cuss word. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. it. it it would come when I'm talking about my rabbi, right? Right. Anyways, anyways, it's it's a great book, very readable, and it's cool to hear about his gangster esca- escapades. It's hard to believe when I see him as my rabbi that, but I do know about Jewish gangsters, you know. So, and um, you know, there, there's this video that I recommend to everybody because it, I just discovered it on on YouTube. It's about these amazing people uh, in Borneo. Uh, uh, they're, they're uh, nomadic people that live in the inner forest that are, are rarely ever seen. Uh, but these two brothers back in the 70s found them. And, uh, and their religion or their spiritual walk with God is so amazing. And I learned so much from it because it's, it's just fascinating. You have to see the video. You can find it on YouTube under Ring of Fire, uh, Dream Wanderers of Borneo. Excellent. That is going to be lifted in. Go ahead. Sorry. I just wish I, w- I wish I had time to uh, to talk about these people, but just watch that video. You're going to see these amazing people that rely on God for their very survival every day in a real way, you know. And I think it it it's really helpful. It's helpful for me, but it's helpful for us to see that God can work in your life in a supernatural way on the daily and these people are alive because of because of it it's an amazing video all right i'm going to make sure that that's also listed on the show notes so folks make sure to check out that video and then number four what is the best suggestion you have ever received wow there's there's a lot of them i think and it's one that i repeat a lot it's like look at you're gonna have tough times because that's life you can't get around it tough times are going to come your way but you don't have to get loaded because of it. And there's a whole lot more deeper things about that. But I remember my sponsor telling me, you know, that because, you know, uh, I, I think I was celebrating something with him, telling him, telling him this and that. And he's like, 
and this I was telling him something good and he goes this too shall pass <laughs> and I was like huh and actually you know I I learned a lot from just that because you know life life is difficult you know but it's a journey and if you could see your your tough times as a learning experience or a toughening experience you know accept your your hardship as part of the journey then you can stand up and stay sober through it you know take joy in it yeah man absolutely take joy in it so number 5 which is similar if you could give our newcomers only one suggestion what would that be i think it's this if what you want to do is change your life and uh and leave behind this struggle with drugs and alcohol if that's what you really want to do then do whatever it takes and do whatever you're told and just do it. They're like the Nike logo. <laughs> just do it, man. Do it. <laughs> <laughs> just do it. <laughs> I love it. And sadly, you know, yeah, we, we, we all, a lot of people when they, when they have trouble, uh, you know, when they're using, I mean, I look back at my life and every breakup, every car crash, every phone loss, every hardship, I could look back and see that drugs and alcohol were involved in some way. So getting sober, of course, really changes, you know, your life's dynamic, you know, because all those problems that you cause because of using are going to be gone, you know, and if, if that's what you, if that's what you really want, then you have to do what it really takes. And that means it's going to take some work. And that's my suggestion. If, do you ask yourself, do you, because you don't have to get sober, you don't have to get clean, you can go on using, you know, nobody's going to tell you anything. I have friends that still drink and everything, and I have friends that have gone out, you know, and I'm kind to everybody, you know, uh, you know, a person. But if what you really want is to get sober, then do whatever it takes. I love it. I love it. What an amazing suggestion. Freddie, thank you again so much for joining us, brother. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Man, this was awesome. This was awesome. I can't wait to read that book. You know, it looks phenomenal. Looks phenomenal. All right. So we have now reached the end of our show. Thanks for joining us. And as we say here in Costa Rica, pura vida. Pura vida. Thank you for joining us on the Share Recovery Podcast. To check out the show notes page on this interview or to thank our guests for sharing their story, go to www.thesharepodcast.com. While you're on the website, don't forget to sign up for our free newsletter to stay up to date on the latest news, podcasts, and interviews. Want to be one of our guests and share your story? Then go to our website and click on the Share Your Story button. We share our inspiring recovery stories every Tuesday. So subscribe to our show on iTunes or Stitcher Radio to get your free weekly download. We'll see you then. The opinions shared on this show reflect those of the individual speaker and not of any 12-step fellowship as a whole. And though we discuss 12-step recovery and the impact it had in our lives, we do not promote or endorse any 12-step anonymous program.